I think sometimes if we're not careful, we're so busy living for the mountaintop experience that we miss out on what God wants to do in those lower times, those valley times of our life. Thanks for tuning in to the Putnam City Baptist Church podcast. We hope this message encourages you wherever you might be. If you'd like to learn more about PCBC, visit us online at pcbc.tv. Now, here's Pastor Bill. Well, we're reading through the Gospels each and every month this summer. Currently, we're in the book of Mark. And in all the Gospels, we are learning how to do love like Jesus loved, 360 degrees, loving people where they are, everywhere, and everyone. I hope you are joining us on the journey of reading through the book of Mark, a chapter a day during this month, and we'll be moving on uh, to the other Gospels in the months ahead. Well, today, turn in your Bibles, let's go into Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, the title of my message is Mountaintops and Valleys. Everyone loves the view from the mountaintop, and it is majestic, and, and that's even what we call it, a majestic view. And there's something about being at that pinnacle, at that height, and looking out and seeing what you couldn't see when you were down in the valley. Uh, beautiful are the mountains. As a matter of fact, Cammie and I, when we got married in 1986, of December of 1986, we went to the Pocono Mountains. Now, I told the travel agent it was the Poconos, but I was quickly corrected and came to understand we were heading for the Pocono Mountains. As a matter of fact, Christmas Eve, it wasn't on our agenda or our itinerary, but we discovered there was a ski resort nearby and that we could go skiing at night. Now, keep in mind, we didn't pack for a ski trip. We packed for a dude ranch that we had gone to. So we had these one-piece Oklahoma uh, coveralls, insulated coveralls. We looked like rednecks, but we showed up on the slopes. And man, it was beautiful that night. A scene much like you see on the screen here. You can see uh, what a night lift looks like. Uh, we went out on Christmas Eve. Hardly anyone was out. We were almost there just by ourselves and maybe a couple of other couples spread out over the whole uh, resort. As we went down on our first run, it had been a long time since Cammie or myself had been skiing, uh, we got down to the bottom and of course there weren't any lines, there wasn't anybody to watch and, and uh, we were trying to figure out how to get on the ski lift. We hadn't done it in years and we didn't have anybody to watch, nobody to model, so there was this huge path of snow and I thought, well, one of us is on one side, one's on the other, there must be a pole in the center of the bench and, and uh, so we took our places and here came the lift and we were in the wrong spots. We quickly tried to jump on top into the middle of the snow deck there and get into the seat, and we were all over the place and almost crashed out of the seat. It was a crazy, crazy moment. We made our way to the top of the hill. It was kind of embarrassing. Uh, certainly it was for Cammie. Uh, we almost broke our necks, it, it, it felt like, coming into that. And then we came down one more time. This time I was ready, and here it is, it's my honeymoon, I'm there to take care of my wife, uh, I want to protect her, be her provider, I want to be her knight in shining armor, and so I'm concerned that we have a good transition this time getting into the lift chair. We're in the right place, the lift chair comes running around, and as soon as it picks you up, it immediately jumps straight into the air. Well, this time, uh, I was concerned that Cammie might fall out or something might not go right. So right as that lift hit us, I went to grab her, just put my arm around her, and as I did that, I literally knocked her out of the chair. That chair had, uh, had scooted out into the middle of the sky. I looked back, they stopped the lift, and there's my newly married bride, face down dead in the middle of the snow. I thought she had broke her neck. I thought the honeymoon was over. It was a crazy moment. 
And as I started to pray, she slowly lifted her head and looked back up at me, and another guy had come down the, the, the slope behind us, and he was in the chair right behind us as well. And I, I looked back and said, Cammie, why'd you fall out of the lift? The guy immediately yelled out, I saw it, I saw it, you did it. It was a bad, bad moment. And I can tell you, as beautiful as that mountaintop was, at, was in that moment, it quickly became a valley moment for us. I'll never forget that honeymoon ever. The mountaintops and the valleys. We're going to look into that, and we're going to see between every mountaintop, mountaintop A, mountaintop B, what's in between? There's always a valley. And between every two mountains, this valley is actually what we would call a lower place. I think sometimes, if we're not careful, we're so busy living for the mountaintop experience that we miss out on what God wants to do in those lower times, those valley times of our life. You see, I've learned, and we'll learn in this passage, that a lower place, that valley, can actually be a higher place. It can actually be a place that can lift you up, a place where your faith can be built stronger and deeper than ever before. I think we're going to discover that God does some of his deepest works in the valleys. Let's take a look at it. Go to Mark chapter 9 and verse 2. We're going to start up on the mountaintop. This time it's going to be Jesus, and he's going to take with him Peter, James, and John. It says, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them on a high mountain by themselves. Now, they've been down among the people. They've been in the cities. They have been doing great ministry, and the crowds are growing, and uh, the success of who they are is spreading through the whole region. Things are going well. Things are awesome. And now Jesus takes them, just those three, not all 12, just these three, to this mountaintop. It says that as they went up on that mountain that Jesus was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Here we look into Mark's gospel and Mark points out that they got to see a dimension of Jesus they had never seen yet. They were seeing him as a prophet. They were seeing him as a rabbi. They were seeing him as Messiah. But they had this physical lens that they were looking through, the physical realm. And in this moment, that filter, that lens was removed, the scales from their eyes. And they saw Jesus for who he was in all of his glory. There's a biblical term for, the, for that called the Shekinah glory of God. It's the radiance of his holiness. And in that moment, they saw what Moses experienced. They saw the full glory of God, so radiant and so exceedingly white, more than any launderer could ever produce with any amount of bleach or hard scrubbing. What we find here is a reality that, that the holiness of God is not something we can manufacture or we can even produce. No matter how much we try to bleach out our sin, no matter how much we try to cover the stain of our unrighteousness, nothing, nothing compares to the radiant glory and the pure holiness of our God. But Jesus came, the Holy One came. And he came not to just shine off and show off his glory. He came so that we might also experience the holy nature of God in our lives. Verse 4. Verse 4 goes on and says, And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. 
Now, verse 4, that would blow anybody's mind. Uh, What a crazy experience. Imagine what they were thinking. First, they see a glowing Jesus. Now they see Elijah and they see Moses talking to Jesus. They died hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. How is this possible? Because you see, there is another realm. There is more to life than this lifetime. There is a supernatural realm, an eternal realm that goes on without end. We find that Moses and Elijah have returned back into this realm, are speaking into Jesus. And we find that Elijah would represent all of the prophets. Moses would represent the law. Many believe, many biblical scholars believe, that they'll be the two witnesses that return at the end of times. For the Bible prophesies there will be two that God sends back for those who have survived during the tribulation period, and there will be two witnesses. Many believe because of this here in Mark chapter 9, and for other reasons, that it would be perhaps Elijah and Moses, the prophets and the law, what the the nation of Israel looks to to discover God's will. They look to the prophets and they look to the law. Matter of fact, we see in Scripture in Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, Jesus said this, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus said, the scriptures, at that time, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, all of those were inspired by God and given to Israel and to the world, actually, so that they might know that God was sending a Redeemer, a Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, who would take away the sins of the world. Jesus said, they all point to me. And here on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are able to see again the law and the prophets speaking, pointing to this holy Son of God, Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 45 is pretty interesting. Philip, it says, found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him. Him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. And so you see, uh, Peter, James, and John were able to look into another dimension, another understanding of who Jesus was in this moment. What a mountaintop experience. What a majestic moment. Can you imagine what that was like? Well, let's go back and let's see where this mountaintop experience leads. Between every two mountaintops, there's a what? There's a valley. Let's take a look at it. Verse 5. So Peter said to Jesus, Peter, you notice this, Peter's always trying to be the spiritual one in the conversation. He's always trying to be the leader. He's always kind of pushing it and always kind of stepping ahead of where the Holy Spirit is. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, whoa, 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 Rabbi, you've just seen Jesus in all of his glory and you still refer to him as Rabbi? Peter still had some more to see. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We've talked about this before. Peter, his evaluation of this experience is, okay, I get it. Uh, what we have honored uh, from the teaching of our elders, all the, the law and the prophets. And now Jesus must be the third edition, a holy trinity. He must be equal to the law and the prophets. So we need three tabernacles right here so we can worship Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. 
It would have been better for Peter just to let Jesus do all the talking. It would have been much better for Peter to, to say, Lord, teach us what this means. Instead, he tries to jump ahead of God. He tries to look spiritual. I would encourage you in your faith that you just let Jesus teach you every day. Don't try to be the most spiritual person in the room. Just be the disciple in the room. Be a lifelong learner and say, Lord, teach me today what you're doing. Teach me, Lord, what this means. As you read through the book of Mark, as we read through the other gospels, Lord, today, teach me. What does this mean? Don't draw your own conclusions. Don't try to manufacture truth. Let truth, Jesus, the way, the truth, and life be your truth. Verse 7. It says, then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once, they looked around. They saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And now we get to verse 9. We see the transition from one mountaintop to where Jesus is leading them next, which is going to be a valley before they ever see another mountaintop. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. What we find in this moment is the reality that Peter models, hey, Lord, we just want to stay here on this mountaintop. Lord, we just want to stay right here. Let's build three tabernacles. Let's do it right here. Forget the lost people down the valley. Forget the mission. Lord, we just want to sit here in kumbaya the rest of our lives. We learn in this the reality that we'd rather stay on the mountaintop. We'd rather stay in the tabernacle. We'd rather stay in a place where we can just hole up and, and have our holy huddle and call it worship, and, and that's all we do. But God calls us as he reveals things, maybe in a mountaintop moment, that as he teaches those things and as he reveals those things, it's so that he can use us down in the valley and actually probably teach us even more there than anywhere else. So we look in on this, we see the reality that God doesn't call us to a holy high place and a separation from our purpose, from our calling, and from God living out through us. He actually as he moves in our lives, as we have those mountain time, mountaintop majestic moments, he actually is going to take us into this world, off the mountain and back to ministry. You see, I believe God is calling us not to just gather together once a week, but calling us as the gathered to scatter, to scatter into the workplace, into our schools, into our communities, and into our neighborhoods, that we go back into the valley with the Jesus that we've experienced. Let's take a look at that. If we're not careful during our lifetime, we'll spend more time in the valley than on the mountaintop, and we'll be so disillusioned and so disappointed, we forget what we've learned on the mountaintop, and we waste the time in the valley. Most people spend time just saying, man, if I could just have another experience like that, if I could just have another majestic moment with Jesus. And they forget Jesus is right there in the valley just like he is on the mountaintop. Look at it, verse 14. When they came back, the rest of the disciples were there, and they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running to greet him. And he asked the crowd, what are you asking or what are you discussing with them? Now, here we find Jesus asking a question. Remember, I've taught you anytime God asks a question, it isn't because he's ignorant or needs information or didn't know what they've been discussing. 
He wanted them to stop and think about what they were talking about and what they were hearing and what they were pursuing and the mess that was going on. He's trying to draw them back to really find the answers they're looking for. Verse 17. And one of the crowd answered him and said, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, he grinds his teeth, and he stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they couldn't do it. So we go from this majestic, basic spiritual retreat out on a mountain to now coming back to the realities of all the problems and all the hurts of the world. The three disciples come down off their mountaintop high and come back to the reality that there's still ministry, there's still hurt, there's still pain, there's still the other disciples, and there are problems. They were discussing, the crowd was, how the disciples were no longer effective. Their ministry was waning. They were not the ones that they could look to for help, for they had brought this man's son, and they couldn't do anything about it. Apparently, they were losing their touch. Apparently, maybe their moment was over, and maybe God had moved on from them. Verse 19, Jesus answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. As Jesus speaks to the crowd, we see Jesus being very direct. There are times that Jesus would be very compassionate. He would look out on the crowds and it says he would look on them with eyes of compassion, that they were sheep without a shepherd. And then in this moment, we find Jesus being firm. Jesus speaking straight into the unbelief of the crowd. There's one thing that always riled the heart of God. It was the spirit of unbelief. Oh, unbelieving generation. He wasn't just speaking to that generation, for that would be the majority of generations throughout human history. How easy it is to fall into the spirit of unbelief, especially in the valley. So let's take some notes. I want you to notice some things we learn about unbelief. Number one, unbelief breeds and grows in the valley. Now, there was a form of unbelief that Peter even experienced on the mountaintop. He didn't fully see all in that moment. He didn't fully believe. He continued to call Jesus rabbi. But when they get down into the valley, in that moment, in that, in that space, we find a spirit of unbelief, and it was spreading like wildfire. It was throughout the entire community and was starting even to spread into the disciples. They were starting to doubt. Number two, when unbelief begins in a person's heart, it spreads to other hearts. This father who came hoping that his son might be blessed like others he had heard of now has embraced a spirit of unbelief and he begins to voice it and the crowd is listening in and the crowd absorbs it and the crowd adopts it. And so we find a generation, a generation. Jesus said this whole generation has become a generation of unbelief. I wonder what will happen in our generation. Will we be known as a generation of unbelief? Will we be known as a generation that once believed but lost our influence and our legacy? Number three, we also learn about unbelief that it takes on various forms. It took on different angles, and there were different groups living down here in the valley that were expressing their own belief. There was the disputing scribes, 
There were the religious professionals who certainly scrutinized who Jesus was, did not believe that he could possibly be God in the flesh, that he was nothing more than a blasphemer. They weren't willing to believe that God was doing something supernatural. And so they were blinded by their religion. You can be religious and still have a spirit of unbelief. You can be a person who believes in prayer, believes there is a God, and still, like these disputing scribes, still have a spirit of unbelief. There was also the demon-possessed boy. There are those in this world who have, perhaps through life choices, through other situations, we don't know why this particular boy was demon-possessed, but he was. There are some, though, who have allowed the activity of the enemy alive and well in their heart because of the choices they've made, the decisions, and the directions they've gone. And that also leads to a life of torment, perhaps a life of unbelief. We find others here in the valley. We find a disillusioned father, a father who tried to muster up faith, have enough faith to bring his son to Jesus, to his disciples, but it didn't work. That religious stuff doesn't work. I gave it a shot. I gave it a try. And now he's taking on his own spirit of unbelief. It could be as you've grown up in a nation that used to be one nation under God, that used to be known as a Christian nation. Could be that you grew up going to church or being in a church or got burned by a church. And that life experience has produced in your heart a seed of unbelief. Maybe, like me, you didn't grow up much around the church or grow up in the church. Maybe you grew up doing a lot of other stuff and were too busy for those kinds of things. Maybe that led to a rationalization that life is just life. And that's your own form of unbelief. I pray that this morning as you're worshiping with us that that God would give you faith, that God would give you the ability to believe and to trust him with all of your heart. Uh, That's going to happen, and it happens a lot of times in the valley times of life. When we are hurting, when we're struggling, here's a father who's aching and hurting and tired of watching his son suffer and be sick. And it's in that darkest moment of his life that Jesus is going to address his unbelief. Take a look at it, verse 20. Jesus said, bring me the boy. So they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? Now remember, when Jesus asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer, not because he needs more information. I think he asked that question that moment because he's dealing with his father's unbelief. He's trying to get the father to quit believing the lies of the past and see what God is doing in his life today. The answer comes from the father. It's been from his childhood. Now that seems to be what has deepened this unbelief in the father's heart. He's watched this torment for this entire childhood of his precious son, and it's hardened the heart of this daddy. Jesus addressing that. Uh, Then we go on in verse 22. Jesus is going to break that unbelief out. He says, it has often thrown them both into the fire, into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Please help us. Well, the disciples hadn't been able to do anything. And I'm sure the father's thinking, Jesus, he's the one that taught all these guys. If they can't do it, 
He's not going to be able to do anything. If you, if you can help us, there's almost a mocking in the, in the response. Why would the leader be any different? The spirit of unbelief. You know, there are many people today that have a hard time buying into Jesus and Christianity. Not because Jesus isn't real. That's not what has blinded them. Not because they don't maybe know that the scripture paints who Jesus is. It's because they know a Christian. Because they've experienced life with another Christian, one of his disciples. And maybe in that moment they weren't walking with Jesus. Maybe in that moment they were a stumbling block and as a result now there's unbelief in their heart. That may be you this very moment. None of us are perfect because if we were, we wouldn't need a God to perfect us. But the Bible does say the Lord who starts a work in us, he is the one that is completing us. That means God's at work in our lives. Uh, We will fail one another. We will fall short of God's glory from time to time. I'll disappoint you and you'll disappoint me. But our eyes are not to be on each other. Our eyes are to be on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. If somebody has hurt you, if somebody has uh, been a stumbling block to you being able to believe in Jesus, I pray in this moment God would grant forgiveness and that God would relieve you of that bitterness and that hurt and that today you could find what they found on the mountaintop, that Jesus would be revealed in all of his glory for who he really is, the holy Messiah who died for your sin and for mine. Verse 23, Jesus speaks into his heart and his unbelief. He says, if you can, I mean, are you saying if I care? Are you saying if I have the power? Are you doubting who I am? Are you doubting whether I even want to? Where's this doubt, if I can? Jesus goes on saying, understand this, all things are possible to him who believes. It's not a matter if I can, it's a matter if you're willing to let me. It's a matter if you're willing to have the faith that I'm the only one who can. You see, the problem wasn't the disciples. The problem wasn't Jesus. The problem was unbelief. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. What an awesome response. What a holy moment. He saw even more than Peter saw on the mountaintop. For in this moment, he sees that Jesus is who he says he is in all of his glory. I now, Lord Jesus, I do believe. And God, continue to help me in my unbelief. You need to take a moment right now, right where you are, and cry out to God in that way. Say, Lord, I'm struggling to believe. Lord, I'm struggling to trust you. Lord, help me in my unbelief. Let him do that right now. Be honest, be transparent, just like this father was real every step of the way. But then he let Jesus be real in his valley. I don't know what valley you're in right now. I know most of this world's in a valley time as we experience COVID, as we experience all these issues that are new to this world. There's nothing new about a valley, and there's nothing new about unbelief. There's also nothing new about the love of Jesus who steps in to our unbelief. Look at verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him, and do not enter him again. 
After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. The boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, raised him up, got him up. We look in on this story and we see where the enemy had come to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus came. They might have life abundantly. But then he picked him up and he raised him up to be a new person in Christ that would have eternal life forevermore. Never to be demon-possessed again, never to walk in that issue of the day, but now to walk in a freshness and a newness of who Christ is. What we come to see in this story is that the spiritual realm is even more real than the physical realm. That there can be a healing, that there can be a sickness in the physical realm, but then there is an eternal healing that only Jesus can bring. Verse 28, when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. In other words, they wanted to get him away and they wanted to debrief and they didn't want to look like they didn't know what was going on. They didn't want to look ignorant. So they pulled Jesus aside. Said, Why couldn't we drive it out? What did we miss? They're going back to their notes. We, we did it just like you taught us. We did it just like we've done before. We tried every trick in the book. We, we put mud on the eyes. We put this. We did this. We put fingers in the ears. We, we blew on. We spent, they tried everything they'd watched Jesus do to heal other people before. And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Did you see that? Look at verse 29. In other words, when you're addressing an issue of unbelief, you can't do that just because you have a heart for ministry, a heart for that person, just because you love God, just because you're a disciple. He said, no, no, no. This requires a spiritual power that comes through prayer. This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. You see, as we look in on this, we see the disciples had started to coast in their newfound power. They started to kind of coast in their techniques and the methods of their new ministry. They began to rely on the past rather than relying on the power of God in their lives. They had to learn what John would record later in John 15, 5, that apart from Christ, we can do absolutely nothing. Here they were in the valley. Jesus was with Peter, James, and John on the mountaintop. And they were relying on their techniques. They were relying on certain words. We'll cast it out with these words. And they've forgotten. It isn't from a technique. It isn't from a method. It's from being abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us. That was the lesson to be learned. And today, maybe we need to be reminded of that. Maybe we're struggling in some dimension of our walk with a spirit of unbelief. Don't be waiting for the next mountaintop experience. I remember when I was a youth pastor, everybody, man, I, I can't wait for Falls Creek to get to here. I know that, man, I know God's going to move when we get down there to Falls Creek and get down there. Are you kidding me? The lesson we learn here is that God is alive on the mountaintop and he's alive in the valley. What we learn in this lesson today is God is in every moment and every situation. And God is there for those who are willing to simply believe and let Jesus be Jesus. Would you pray with me about that this morning? Let's pray together. With every head bowed and every eye closed. The only hope for this generation, this generation that's under a curse of unbelief, 
is that a generation rises up, a generation that chooses to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, chooses to believe that he gave us his holy word to know who this Jesus really is, how to abide in Christ and how to let Christ abide in us. And it could be that as you are worshiping with us this morning, that God has revealed to you that you have the heart, much like the Father in this story. You believe that Jesus can help, but you still have unbelief. You've not been changed, and he's not your Jesus. He's just Jesus. You need a Savior. Let Jesus help you right now with your unbelief. Say, Lord, help me. Help me, Lord, in my unbelief. I remember trying to believe. I remember trying to figure it all out. I remember hearing the preaching for nine months at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Enid, Oklahoma. I remember hearing the power of the Holy Spirit. I remember seeing people every Sunday give their life to Christ. I remember the pastor asking, if you die tonight do you know for, or this morning, do you know for certain you'd go to heaven? Raise your hand. And I couldn't raise my hand. I didn't have that peace. I didn't have that certainty. I had unbelief. But then there was that moment, just like for this father, just like many in this crowd, that God removed the scales. The God of this world who's blinding me and keeping me in my unbelief, I now was able to see Jesus. That he was the way, the truth, and life. That he was my only hope. And that he so loved me, he died for me. And I wonder today if that's you, if you need to see that Jesus. And if you are seeing him and you know that's God speaking to you right now, that's God wanting to save you. God wanting to change you. And I would just encourage you right now to humble yourself and say, God, help my unbelief. God, save me. I believe. I believe you are the Son of God. I know I'm a sinner, and I know that you are the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Would that be your prayer? Make it your prayer. And as you pray that right now, just say, Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you want to live in my heart. I open the door of my heart and ask you to come in. The Bible says it's with the heart we have to believe, not the head, but with the heart. If that's your prayer this morning, the Bible says you are now saved. You're now a child of God. He now reaches down where you were once in your sin and your unbelief, and just like that boy, he is picking you up, and he's raising you up to be a new person, a new creation, the Bible says. No longer dead in our sin, but alive in Christ. Reach out to our online pastor. Would you do that? Would you email me at ministry at pcbc.tv and say, man, today, today, Jesus saved me. We want to rejoice with you and we want to celebrate. I know there are many others of you that are praying right now, and you may already know Jesus is Lord, as Savior, and yet there's some unbelief in your heart. Just like the disciples down in this valley moment, they were starting to have a spirit of unbelief come over them. Maybe you need just a moment to say, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Would you... Would you wrestle with that right now? And if that's the need of your moment, of your heart, just pray that simple prayer, Lord, help me in my unbelief. As God deals with that right now, maybe God wants to use you like he wanted to use the disciples to help somebody who's struggling in their unbelief. Make it your prayer this week, Lord, use me. Use me. As I abide in you and you abide in me, use me in the life of somebody this week that they might see Jesus, that they might see you, Lord Jesus, for who you really are.
That'll be my prayer for you this week as well. Keep reading through the book of Mark. Know that we're praying for you. Know that if you need us to pray in a specific way, you can reach out to the online pastor again at ministry at pcbc.tv. And we would love to pray for you this week, Tuesdays in staff meeting and throughout the week. But until then, know that God loves you and so do we. God bless and have a Jesus-led week. Thank you for spending time with our church family. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, visit us online at pcbc.tv. There you can also contact us and find out how to connect with us through social media channels. And visit pcbc.tv podcast to listen to additional messages from Putnam City Baptist Church.